Welcome to the Bonner Private Research Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Bowman. Each week, we bring you exclusive conversations with members of Bill Bonner's private research team, as well as some special guests we'll meet along the way. We're trying to connect the dots, from high finance to lowly politics, private investments to public follies, from Wall Street to Main Street, at home and on the road. We're into sound money, personal freedom, classical books, and great wines. Not always in that order. So join me and the rest of the Bonner Private Research team as we pack our bags and follow the money. Something a bit different for you this week, dear listener. In place of our regular scheduled programming, in which your host pontificates on topics of great interest and then seamlessly segues into a fascinating one-on-one discussion with a member of the Bonner Private Research Team, we have for you instead a kind of digital symposium, recorded some few days ago, in which we were joined by not one, but three exceptional and insightful minds. Addison Wigan, New York Times bestselling author and host of the Wigan Sessions podcast, moderated the event. We were also joined by Dan Denning, co-author of the Bonner Denning Letter, tireless champion of liberty and longtime favorite to this very audience. And finally, the ever-charming Anya Leonard, founder and director of Classical Wisdom and, as kindly Lady Fortuna would have it, also your host's better half. From the battle for the classics and the ongoing attempted homicide underway in academies across the land, to common conflations, mesimisnomas, and nomenclatorial non-sequiturs in the cutting-edge world of cryptocurrency, our panel took a deep dive into subjects both ancient and contemporary in this wide-ranging discussion. We were trying to connect the dots between the sensorial impulse pervading our culture and the attack on sound money as a means for honest, hard-working people to save and invest for their futures. From Socrates to Satoshi, there's about two and a half thousand years in there to cover. So without further ado, I'll hand it over to Addison for his opening remarks. Please enjoy this special panel discussion up next. All right, welcome to the Wigan Sessions. Uh, This is Surviving and Thriving During the Global Pandemic, Part 39. Uh, today, we have special guests, Dan Denning, Anya Leonard, and Joel Bowman. Uh, one thing that we all have in common is St. John's, each in different ways. Dan and I met at St. John's College in graduate school. Anya, I believe you attended uh, St. John's for a period of time. And Joel, I'll leave the details of your experience <laughs> at St. John's to the imagination. Uh, a, vi- but, a vicarious education, maybe. <laughs> yeah. And, and some lodging. That's that debatable. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. Remains to be seen. Uh, but the one thing that, uh, that, that I want to talk about today to kick things off is, um, is the classics. We all were interested in the classics. Uh, Anya is a co-founder of Classical Wisdom um, and host of a podcast uh, on classics in modern culture. Uh, and St. John's, if you're unaware, St. John's College is a uh, unit or a college really that focuses on the great conversation, the classics of Western civilization, um, starting from pre-Greek times all the way to uh, well, the canon at St. John's ends in the early 1900s. Uh, so we all have that in common where we've been studying and, and interested in in the classics and how it pertains to trends that are going on in the economy and in our culture today. Um, one of the things I find interesting about the classics is in our modern culture, it allows us to kind of step back and see people operate in time and space that we're not in close proximity to. So we can um, look at human behavior and ideas from a distance. And collectively, we've all lived in foreign countries. Um, We've lived in France. You guys, uh, Anya and Joel, you guys are in Buenos Aires right now. Dan, you've lived all over the world. 
I find like when we lived in uh, my family, we lived in Paris for a number of years and watching like social, uh, the social environment, politics, culture, when you're not actually engaged in it, um, gives you a very different perspective on what's happening. You're not as uh, closely invested in it uh, as, as like politics in the United States right now. I'm, I'm talking from Baltimore and um, it's difficult to extricate myself from uh, the political discussion and how it impacts my kids and all that kind of stuff. But when we live in a foreign culture, um, it's easy to extricate yourself and look at the whole thing as like a grand sort of comedy. Uh, and to me, that's what the classics allow us to do too. When we're reading um, the Greeks or the, or the Romans or whatever, or even uh, like medieval Europe, um, we get a view on the ideas that created the culture that we live in, but we can, we can remove ourselves from it and it becomes interesting. Um, today, uh, just to kick this off, what I'm interested in is uh, the attack on the classics. And it's a feature of the cancel culture that we're all going through right now. Um, Anya, you recently hosted a, a podcast or an event uh, that looks at the attack on the classics, which is something that I wouldn't have um, suspected would be a feature of the current uh cultural climate that we're going through right now. Can you, just to get the conversation started, can you talk a little bit about what gave you the idea to host that event and then um, who attended and, and kind of what happened? Uh, yes, well, thank you, Addison, for, for having me here today. Um, and it, it is a really bizarre thing in a way, I gotta say, because the classics, uh, you might think, uh, it seems so innocuous, it's so ancient. I mean, how, how can people be so offended? But it turns out people can be offended by anything these days. Mm -hmm. So um, that seems to be the case. But uh, basically what happened is in January, there was a New York Times article that came out by a prominent classicist who sort of took uh, saying that we shouldn't necessarily preserve this as a field um, and to attack the, the whiteness of the classics. Um, and it's been something that just about every single person who loves the classics reads this article and they like, it's sort of hard to get through because every paragraph you go through, you, you immediately come to all the defenses that you want to say. Uh, and so it is, it is a sort of bizarre moment in history where uh, sort of this standard this field of history and literature and philosophy um, is, is being so questioned. But when I say that, actually, that's not the case, because the debate about the classics, it has been a long debate. Um, and it had a huge debate in the mid 19th century as well. Because in the very founding of America, you know, Greek and Latin were instrumental. You couldn't go to Harvard if you didn't pass a Greek test or a Latin test. Uh, the, all of the Ivy Leagues required it. And the humanities was part of the core curriculum. Uh, around the time period when you had sort of the boom of, of science and uh, you actually had this, uh, this brought over from the German universities style of, of more vocational universities, back then that's when they started debating what is the value of the classics um, as society becomes more niche. So this is actually a debate that, that happened, you know, well over a hundred years ago. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, the arguments that failed then are often the arguments people are still using today to try to come to the classics defense. So our event the other day was with the author, Eric Adler, the um, professor of philosophy at the University of Maryland. So not too far away from you, Addison. And uh, he basically wrote a book called The Battle of the Classics describing the debate that happened in the 19th century. Um, and so it's, it's, it's been an interesting conversation because on the one hand, you know, it's, there's a kind of very niche, kind of extreme Twittersphere cancelizers that are, you know, Wokaratis that are trying to at attack the classics. But for the most part, I think a lot of people who love the classics are still able to, to study it. Uh, but there is bullying happening. Like I, I ask professors and such what, what happens, and sometimes they do do get the attack. So it's 
when we had the event the other day and it was great. We had lots and lots of turnout, really, really positive people who select to watch these things. Actually, almost all of them were, were kind of saying, how can we help? How can we make sure the classics stay relevant? How can we find the resources? How can we ensure the education of the classics for our children and our grandchildren? So I think the value of the humanities and to what you said, Addison, that we're, we're part of this long chain of humanity that is timeless, that has these lessons from the ancient world that are then, you know, are the cornerstone of further literature, further philosophy. Uh, it is our burden to make sure that this history is forgotten. And I think there is, I want to say optimistically, people who care about it. Uh, I like to think all of us here included. I would like to think that too, but within the um, within the conversation, the great conversation that includes um, many of the ideas that led to like the founding of our country, you, you, we had an interesting discussion earlier this week about um, how much uh, the like the political philosophy and the ideas that went into the founding documents of the United States were rooted in the in the Greek and Roman tradition of uh, experiments with. Uh, both um, democracy, the concept of a republic, and also secular cultures, culture outside of the uh, of religious life. Um, but within that same conversation, within the tradition, there's also uh, the what's known as the Hegelian dialectic, which is uh, a view of the uh, the material world and kind of a power struggle over who controls it and. Um, one of the things that I think is interesting is that the roots of the cancel culture that we're going through right now is uh, rooted in this material dialectic where um, rather than trying to include people in the conversation and come to a more equitable society, the idea behind cancel culture is that there is, uh, there's a hierarchy of power and this is something that Marx identified, Marx being a student of Hegel, um, and that uh, the capitalist structure of society perpetuates stereotypes that, that, um, that keep certain people, in this case, white men in power and everyone else is sort of excluded. So the, the impetus behind a lot of the social justice movements right now are to cancel that idea, and that's the root of the att attack on uh, on the classics these days. And it's a, a difficult um, it's a difficult conversation to have with with anybody because, especially all three, all four of us are white people, <laughs> and uh, just even bringing up the conversation makes it difficult to have. I mean, we're we're in positions of having the conversation in a way that a lot of other people are not. Um, so what I'm, what I'm curious about is what is the impact of, uh, of that same tradition though? In, like you're talking about the battle of the classics. There are, there are traditions within the classical, um, within the classical conversation that also advocate uh, using the same arguments that we would, we would use to advocate a more open and liberal society to close it and create hierarchical structures. Um, there's a lot of different ways we could take that conversation, but but I'm just wondering what what you think. Well, uh, I, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Well, just like because you're talking to a lot of people about the same subject, it's one thing to love the class; it's it's another thing to see it applied and used in uh, in society. Yeah, I mean, I think the. I think there can be like a living canon. I think canons should and could and can evolve. And the canon has evolved. I mean, the original canons were so steeped in just religiosity that we wouldn't, you know, necessarily agree with them. Obviously, the original um, canons never included any medieval authors either. I mean, it, they, they can continuously change. Uh, and I think that's fine. We should find the virtue in history um, and leave out the, the unvirtuous in the same way that the founding fathers, like they didn't just take wholesale the classics. They had a conversation essentially with 
with the ancients. You know, they they took the things they liked, they took the things that they dis disliked, and um, I think that's the fallacy of the current cancel culture. They just you know, say, oh, Aristotle had slaves and he couldn't count women's teeth. Let's cancel him. Well, you know, if you really want to find anybody from the ancient world that doesn't have or anybody from any part of the world that doesn't have something you dislike, then, you know, you're just going to erase history. And the funny thing is, is that you're going to erase the actually the diverse voices that that were influenced by the classics, because the classics you know, you think of down here in Argentina, the, the most famous author of all of South America, of all Latin culture, Borges, was through and through a classicist. So if you want to read the best Latin author of all time, you got to read the classics. Where are you going to cancel Borges now? You know, where does it end? Yeah. Um, one of the one of the modern, more modern uh, advocates of or like maybe I should say, uh, modern root of the cancel culture is uh, Antonio Gramsci. Dan, you and I have had many conversations about Gramsci and the long march through uh, the institutions of Western society. Um, I want, I, what I really want to do is get to your uh, analysis that you published or that you guys put out in the Bonner private research recently about um, how the uh, monetary environment that we live in sort of uh, accommodates a social movement. Um, you connected the dots very well, in my opinion. Um, but I want to get there through Gramsci because Gramsci was a was a political philosopher in the 30s in Italy who advocated Marxist ideas of the power structure of the dialectic, but he thought that in order for it to really take hold in society, um, it couldn't be driven by the elites. It would have to be the um, the institutions that educate new uh, new adherents. Uh, and so, the long march through the institutions is is essentially the idea that if if um, if they um, educate the the um, bourgeois to understand that the proletariat needs to play a bigger role or something that when the revolution came, um, then the, the, the people would be ready for it. Um, I think part of that, so this is a long way to get to what I really want to talk about is a long way to, uh, the, the monetary system that we live under now is, um, is a, uh, is one of the institutions that's accommodating a um, effectively a revolution in the way we think about saving entrepreneurship, um, educating our our um, kids, that kind of thing. So I'm hoping that you can understand my question and then help me uh, connect the dots there. Um. Well, they're, they're really two sides of the same coin, that the attack on the classics is an attempt to use language to redefine the culture in favor of people who have a, a very particular definition of, of power or inequality or they have a, a political view. In the financial markets, it's the same thing, that people want to redefine what money means so that they can use money as a means of control. So, for example... The, uh, recently, there's been a, a, a huge rush of interest in central bank digital currencies, and that's not about payment systems being more efficient or, or more transparent. It's about con the government using money as a way to control and manage people's behavior. So on the one hand, you're, you're talking about language and thought as a way to control behavior, and on the other hand, you're talking about money and technology as a way to modify behavior. So um, they're you know, they would seem to be different, but really we're talking about behavior modification by people in control based on political values they think are superior to tradition. Um, you recently, uh, and if I get this wrong, just correct me, but you gave, uh, I'm assuming it was a Zoom speech for the Hayek Center when they put on a roadshow about defending um, more or less libertarian values as we move forward, if there's a struggle for power and there are, and it's many, many faceted, if there's an attack on classics, if there's an attack on the, on the uh, 
definition of money and how we use it. Um, that it sounded to me the way we were talking about it like that, the Rocha was uh, intended to help define uh, what I would call classical liberal values moving into a, a digital era, really. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, I think what we're finding, and this is a separate but interesting conversation, is that technology, particularly the internet and social media, seems to have amplified the angriest and most tyrannical voices in society. So instead of being a tool for liberation and free expression and free speech, it's being used as a tool of suppression and control. And the point that I was trying to make is whatever your political values, um, my view is it's, it's become more important to, to almost be absolutist in our defense of civil liberties, whether that's freedom of association, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, the second amendment, um, freedom of religion, that when you mentioned Gramsci, what we've seen is a systematic undermining of all of those institutions of family, church, schools, by people who believe in the power of the state. So I think not that we need, I don't, I don't want to advocate violence because I don't believe in that, but the phrase punch back twice as hard means that uh, when we're having a conversation about what kind of, you know, what kind of money system we're going to have or, or, or what kind of political system, it's not really a conversation right now. We're being talked at and threatened. And uh, I think it's time for people who believe in these things. You know, this isn't a history lesson anymore. This is our chance to, to try and defend uh, and articulate uh, classical liberal values so that we can live our lives and, and pursue our interests the way we want. Because if we don't do that, then we will lose the argument. Well, in, uh, in, in our tradition, uh, we've been publishing for well over 20 years now, we've, we've defended uh, the concept of a free market, the idea that people can come together in, in an open market and define their own prices, they can define their own products, they can build and they, and they sort of exist in a free society. And if you're able to uh, it, create things that other people want, then that allows you to continue to, to be innovative and that kind of thing. We have defended that, but but even that concept is that's one of the classical sort of liberal liberal values that's that's under under siege. Um, but at the same time, that's those that argument of a free market is being used to defend uh, the development of digital currencies. And if, if digital currencies are a weapon in in trying to control people's behavior or whatever, um, it's it's an interesting um, uh, dynamic. We we have the opportunity to defend uh, the traditions that we think are important, but at the same time, um, the I want to call it the the uh, the way that money is being redefined is allowing for rampant speculation in the markets, which some people defend as free market behavior and other people are just i mean they're not even paying attention they're just trying to make a quick buck by buying at one price and selling at a higher price and joel i'm going to bring you in here because uh you have um <laughs> written a few pieces on uh, cryptocurrencies and uh and that i'm leading my way to there because uh, to me the, the speculative nature that is surrounding bitcoin as the the poster child for it all, but um, the the advent of a new money system, that's the way a lot of people talk about it, is giving way to a lot of uh, a lot of speculative behavior that is um, characteristic of many of the investment bubbles we've seen in the past, uh, going back hundreds of years to when free markets began. Um, Right now, I, I, I don't know where Bitcoin is today, but it's somewhere around 60,000, which is up considerably over the last year. How do you put, um, put the, uh, <laughs> the context of the conversation we're having in the, um, in the argument you've been making for cryptocurrencies for over a decade? Yeah, well, I think, um, thanks, first of all, for for inviting me on and uh, and to the other guests for joining. But I'd, I'd first make, I think, a very important distinction between um, fiat cryptocurrencies, that is government issued state, um, you know, state sponsored central bank 
digitalized currencies and what the market is offering. I think what the market offers uh, is something with entirely different motivations to that which, um, to the nefarious motivations that the state has in undermining individual privacy, um, you know, being able to track your purchasing power, they'll no doubt use it for, um, you know, all kinds of nefarious purposes, all the way through to, you know, taxing um, you on goods that it doesn't approve that you're purchasing and getting in the way of, um, of voluntary associations that you might want to have with, you know, whomever it is that with whom you wish to contract. Um, so, so that's one type of of money. Uh, it's brought into the digital realm by virtue of uh, this cryptocurrency revolution. But it's, I would say that is very distinct from what we see and what we have seen for the last decade with the free market answer to fiat, i.e. paper money. Uh, and that's been a decentralized um, uh, currency revolution, most notably, as you mentioned, in with the poster child being Bitcoin. But I think something that something that people commonly mistake here is that they'll say something like Bitcoin because it's not tangible. They'll mistakenly say that it's fiat when that those two things, that's a real conflation of terms. They really don't have anything to do with one another. Fiat literally just means, and here I'm saying, telling the, the Greek and Latin geeks in the, in the room, but fiat for, for listeners who don't know, really just means by decree, uh, there, by governmental decree. There is no Bitcoin government making any decrees. There is no Bitcoin central bank. There is no Bitcoin board of governors. So there's nothing fiat with with regard to Bitcoin at all. So to to conflate those two issues is to is to misunderstand uh, quite what's happening there. But to, to bring it a little further back and we can get to the speculative uh, stuff in a second because big numbers make sexy headlines. Um, but to go back to the, to tie this back into the classics, I think, uh, what we're talking about here is the difference between a totalitarian impulse, which is a centralizing, um, which is a centralizing tendency that we see within nation states and governments, whether in uh, in Europe, North America, or whatever whatever continent you happen to down here in South America, certainly has no shortage of that in its history. But when it comes to the state, we see big centralizing um, tendencies. In the market, we see exactly the opposite we see uh, almost a centrifugal force spinning out, decentralizing to, you know, this is, this is Schumpeter's creative destruction in, in hyper acceleration um, aided and accelerated and catalyzed by the digital age. So it would make sense that we see, uh, you know, in uh, improperly used or lethargic capital liberated from, uh, from inefficient businesses in in this kind of you know this kind of hyper evolutionary free market system and so we shouldn't be surprised to see that there's a lot of innovation there's a lot of highs and lows that prices would go crazy we're still at the you know even though it's a decade in um you know it's that's a a blip uh you know when we're when we're talking about the history of of money for example you know gold's got thousands of years of history so we're still at the very very bleeding edge of this and so we should be you know we should expect to see um, you know, a lot of, a lot of turbulence with regards to prices, but I, I would just make that, that kind of primary distinction between what I think uh, Dan was talking about there with regards to government issued uh, cryptocurrencies and free market cryptocurrencies, because they're, they're very different and they have very different motivations behind them. One being to centralize and coerce and control people and the other being to liberate and, um, and free people from that very impulse. Yeah, I mean, look, if, if, you, if you didn't have any of it for the last 10 years, um, it, you know, it, it's, it's kind of a painful episode to, to sit by and watch. And that goes back to FOMOing. And I think that there's no doubt that people, you know, everybody you know has a story that, oh, so-and-so told me about it when it was at such and such a price. And, if I, and then they do the, the math in reverse, which is never healthy for one's, uh, you know, mental quietude or ability to have, you know, fitful I actually nice, have a story. Nice rest. I, yeah, have a I mean, story. everybody, well, I want to hear the story. No, everybody, I mean, I everybody's going. <laughs> when, when you and I and Jeffrey Tucker were writing together, Jeffrey mm -hmm. was trying to convince me that Bitcoin was a thing. 
And I was like, yeah, I understand like the sort of libertarian free market perspective of why it would be important. I get that. And he's like, you ought to invest in one. And he's like, oh, well, in fact, I'm going to open you a wallet and, and I'm going to give you a Bitcoin. And I think it was a dollar at the time. And so he opened a wallet, gave it to me. And it was a dollar. That was probably in 2009 or something like that. And uh, I was like, oh, thank you, Jeffrey. You just gave me a buck. And <laughs> I don't know where that, that wallet is or how to get it. Whatever. <laughs> but it would, right. would have multiplied what? What is that? 600,000%? Yeah, it's a non-trivial increase. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I, so. see, but I think you're both, you're orbiting around the same issue in that they're, they're, uh, it's, it's an important issue about the whole conversation because if we're talking about how much money we didn't make in dollars because we didn't invest in Bitcoin early, we're still talking about dollars. That's we're not talking point. about Bitcoin. Um, if we're talking about a new asset class that whose primary function is as, as a reserve asset for either institutions or central banks or as a preservation of capital earned in any currency, then you don't really care about making money. You care about not losing purchasing power. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the huge move in Bitcoin in dollar terms prompts the question, what's really going on? Is it people trying to make money in dollars or in other currencies? Or does it signal that at the margins in the entire financial system, there's a wholesale loss of confidence in the de facto risk-free rate of return as defined by US treasuries in the US dollar? And that's why it's fundamentally a monetary argument. And that's what makes it such an interesting contest between free market money and governments that want to try something like central bank money is they realize to, to control power in the economy and in politics and society, you have to control the conversation over what money is. And mm. so Bitcoin's move as a price signal says that other people think the government shouldn't have control of money. That's what we think. But also what's going on is people think, holy crap. I missed out on the best chance in my entire life to become a millionaire without doing any work in a society where the only way I can get ahead now is borrow money. So yes. you, you have two completely competing narratives about what's what explains the price action. Yeah. Well, well that, can I just that, say that, that idea, that kind of speculative on. idea that you can do, you can become rich without investing anything. I think that that's kind of the root of sort of the cultural malaise that we're involved in right now like the like the um the idea that you can invest or uh you could work hard save your money invest build a business and uh educate your yourself and your family all of those things get thrown out the window when you hear somebody um took a dollar and made sixty thousand dollars out of a bitcoin yeah, I, which by the way didn't happen, but <laughs> until you find that until, it's out there somewhere, until you find that pen drive under the couch cushion, and uh, yeah, but, <laughs> but look, look, there's definitely look, no doubt there is exactly the kind of moral hazard that is explained by, um, you know, by Mises et al. Um, with regards to you know, just massively loose um, fiscal and monetary policy and the malinvestment that follows as a natural, uh, you know, that naturally follows subsequent to that. You know, people are, Anya and I are down here in Argentina and we, you know, we see, I think it's officially maybe 55% inflation, but everybody knows it's much higher than that down here. And so we see these economics lessons, you know, every time we, buy a bunch of flowers or, you know, go to a restaurant or, or, you know, pay our kids school fees. Um, people need to spend out of, they need to spend their way out of Argentine pesos as quick as possible because they know that by the end of the week, it's going to be worth that much less. So for a lot of people down here where currency controls or uh, rather capital controls, um, you know, come into play and they're, they're restricted in the amount of dollars that they can buy. They're restricted in the amount of gold that they can, that they can purchase. They're restricted in the amount of money that, uh, or real assets that, that they can move offshore. Then it becomes, you know, then, then we can easily see the appeal of something that you don't have to walk over the border, you know, in the, in the, you know, in, in gold coins that are sewn into the hem of your tattered old trench coat, um, a la, you know, 1940s Germany or what, or what have you. We, we see people, 
they say, hey, uh, you know, I can, I can invest in literally out of the window of my apartment here. There's a billboard sign for, I don't know how it's pronounced. It's DAI, D-A-I uh, currency. And it's, it's a, one of these stable currencies that's fixed one, one unit to one dollar. And you can, I mean, I can easily appreciate how somebody who is watching their central bank just fritter away the value of their pesos in Argentina's account, why that would be appealing. Um, you know, it, cryptocurrency, and I'm talking about free market cryptocurrency, not about the, this cheap hack and eyed bullshit simulacrum that the governments around the world will be offering their, their obedient citizens. Free market uh, money in the form of, of cryptographically secured currency is, is a bet. It's going long government stupidity. It's saying governments will continue to debase our currency, and I'm going to bet that happens. And so far, it's been a pretty good bet. That's not to say that in the next, you know, <laughs> that by the end of this conversation, there hasn't been a rip-roaring bear market that has just blown through like a forest fire through the, you know, the cryptocurrency world and 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 doused, you know, all the weekends. That obviously can happen and it'll be a spectacular ride going forward. But but that that central, under, that understanding that it it's, that free market monies, whether they're gold, whether they're cryptocurrencies are a bet that governments will keep doing what governments do. I think, I think. It's so even the, Can I even just the, add that, that to, to Joel's point? I mean, uh, here in Argentina, you know, we see the hyperinflation. And, and so the bitcoins and cryptocurrencies are used to preserve people's wealth rather than make a buck. But where you really see it, where it's super popular is in Venezuela. And, you know, that is an ongoing crisis. And we've lived in a few different countries in Latin America and you see Venezuelan refugees everywhere. I mean, it is an ongoing crisis and cryptocurrencies are literally helping people survive that. So it's, it's playing, it's, it's, yeah, it's playing a very important role um, for, for those people in, in that situation. Yeah, I think that's the, to me, that's the sort of like the philosophically interesting thing because the restrictions that you were talking about putting in place, Venezuela has tried that for years and years and, and the confidence, they, even with restrictions in place, the confidence level erodes to zero. And right. people, um, you know, people can't even feed their families at a point, right? Yeah, and remember the Venezuelan government just to just to draw a sharp distinction between a, a, a fiat crypto, which would be a government issued crypto, crypto, and a free market crypto. Um, you know, the, recall that the Venezuelan government introduced its own crypto, the, the like Petrocoin or yeah, Bit Petro or some garbage. Anyway, lo, lo and behold, that didn't take off. It wasn't because people didn't have faith in math. It was because people didn't have faith in the Venezuelan government, which is a pretty <laughs> that's a pretty. <laughs> pretty good bet um well what is a good way i'm i'm now i'm curious myself like what's a good way to just determine the just or distinguish between a fiat crypto and um and a free market crypto well anything that's that sounds like govcoin or that's or that's yeah. issued by or like, or that's, that's issued fed by fed yeah, coin. Any, fed coin yeah yeah exactly uh you know, there's. I remember during the kind of early days of, you know, Bitcoin came on the block and then there was this proliferation of all these different types of coins that had, you know, s slight genetic modifications and were tailored toward different, um, you know, segments of the market, some to, you know, anonymity or, you know, whatever, what, what micro donations, whatever little niche of the market they were trying to fill. Uh, we saw this massive prolif proliferation of, so-called altcoins during the during the early days and i remember having discussions with people who were indicting bitcoin for saying hey this is inflationary look there's there's um you know xyz coin down the road and they don't have a cap of 21 million so now so i thought you said that bitcoin was limited supply now that's inflationary i think again that that's more confusion in terminology and, and jargon there where when we have more participants offering goods or services in a in a particular market, we don't call it inflation. We call it growth. That's economic growth. That's more hot dog vendors offering their wares at the park or whatever. But just in the same way that the U.S. Federal Reserve printing more currency units there doesn't affect the inflation of a you know the 
the inflation or the velocity of money for people in Iceland that are not that are not using their money. Uh, it's a similar way to say that inflation is contained within an individual coin offering. So the Bitcoin, the inflation rate in Bitcoin is always dependent on that curve, and everybody's seen that that graph of of um, of I guess non exponential growth um, with the amount of coins being released and the halvings and such and such gets gets a little bit inside baseball, but um, but that's that's again another one of these other misnomers to say oh now there's last year there was a hundred altcoins now there's ten thousand altcoins so what's to stop you, Addison, or me, Joel, or Anya, or Dan, or the Venezuelan government from releasing our own coin uh, into the marketplace? Well, nothing. But that's yeah. a feature, not a flaw. Uh, well, it, I, Joel, can I jump in? Because I, I think it, 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 uh, what you're talking about is right. It's a, the, the difference is that no one's telling you what something is worth, which is what you said basically by fiat, that you you it has value because you're told that it's legal tender by the only person who has a monopoly on telling other people what money is. Mm. So if you wanted to, to distinguish between fiat and anything else, well, why do people believe that money has value? Well, one, because they use it. And lots of things have been useful as money over time. Uh, it could be salt, it could be pepper, it could be calorie shells. You know, there's lots of interesting books on, on the utility value of money. Another is that they believe it. So they're not, they don't believe it because they're told by the government that it's money, although that's the case for many people now, um, but that they believe gold has value. It's useful as well, uh, or that they save in it. That's a third reason, that, that uh, you don't tend to, to save in assets that you think lose value over time. That doesn't mean you use them to pay for things on a day-to-day basis, but it means that you're not told, you don't have to be told that something has value. That's why people buy real estate. That's why they bought pianos in Weimar, Germany. They were looking for tangible assets that they could either liquidate at a value or at least not their money wasn't stored in paper currency, which the government was constantly adjusting to a new value. And I mean, I think the most interesting part with cryptos, which I will admit I don't know very much about. And I think, Joel, it was a it was a spoonerism or uh, I can't remember the correct term, but you, I thought you said griftos at one point instead of cryptos, which I thought was quite nice. <laughs> that is but, a spoonerism. But um, <laughs> it's, it's the value of the network. How do you value hmm. Bitcoin? Well, you don't value it in dollar terms. You value it in the network. This, the, the number of people that are using it to move value around the world, whether that's to pay for dinner or to move assets from one place to the other. And that that's more of a technology issue when we talked about the first mover advantages and the network effect with Facebook and with WhatsApp and with Google and YouTube. Um, so uh, to me, that's been the most interesting way of looking at it. But the first three are traditional. Do people use it? Do they save in it? Do they believe in it without being told that it's valuable? And, and the fourth is really a question of utility is the larger the network gets, th- then the more it indicates that uh, that people believe that in one form or another as either a savings mechanism or as a means of, of conducting transactions, this has more value than that. Yeah, I think that's an, that's an excellent point. And that differentiates between uh, another misnomer, which is that there is this thing called intrinsic value where, you know, you just dig something up like a like an ingot of gold from the ground and it just has the price stamped on it. And then that's just, it's somehow in the thing itself. Um, this was, you know, this is something that's often leveled against cryptocurrencies because they're not tangible. People make the mistake of saying, well, there's no intrinsic value, but of course the, the Austrians understood that there is no such thing as intrinsic value, that value comes from that, that it's actually value is subjective and it's dependent on it's an, a thing's utility toward to, toward us. The, the, we imbue things with value depending on whether or not we find them useful, and that and that can change just given our circumstances. We would obviously value a glass of water very differently if we're have just you know stumbled out of a forty day wandering around the desert with a, a mouth like at the bottom of a bird cage, or if we're standing under the Niagara Falls. Water has a different value because it has a different usefulness to us in that particular well, moment. And, so. and on that point, by the way, the scarcity is an element in both Bitcoin and gold. That that's a physical quality of gold because it takes 
energy and labor and knowledge to find it, which from a monetary point of view means it's impossible to expand the, mon the money supply and create inflation with a pen. Bitcoin, that scarcity is programmed in cryptographically. So in that sense, you can see the common ground between people that it's 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 a the it's a unit that cannot be increased artificially by a committee. All right, um, my Swiss cuckoo clock just went off, which means we've now been talking for an hour. And Dan, I believe you have a you have a lunch engagement or something. Time is money. Uh, that unit doesn't change either. So yeah, I have to go. I'll see. Now it's been it's been clocked. Um, but I do want to. I hope you're not appropriating Swiss culture there, Addison. Oh. <laughs> that's can, that's a cancelable offense. I'll have you know. Racist imperialist. Patriarch. <laughs> I just did uh, ancestry.com, and um, I don't have Swiss in me, but for some reason, I have twelve percent Swedish. That, that won't cut it, mate. That's cultural yeah. appropriation. You're out of here. Yeah, but it's 12% is not enough. But I do want to just, uh, I feel like this conversation, I want, this was kind of an experiment to get the four of us together. But uh, uh, what I'm hoping it will do is open up a loop, a couple loops about cryptocurrency, um, the value of money, and, uh, and the classical traditions that we have uh, developed over time to understand things like we're, we had a big discussion about free markets like that is central to Austrian uh, economic theory to me economics is just an expression of human behavior like how do we understand each other and how do we survive how do we take care of our, our family and friends and and how do we express our ambitions and that kinds of kind of thing. So I'm hoping that this will, uh, this will open a discussion um, for the Wigan sessions, which I'm going to all next week, I'm going to write about it. So, and I have been for a couple of weeks now, but can uh, I make I wanna, a request. Can I make a request before you go? Because I yeah. would like to hear from Anya on what we can learn from the classics about devaluation, inflation, and the social and political consequences. Because I think if, if anyone still studied them seriously, economically, they would they would see that there's a lot to be learned about today's modern monetary world from studying what happened in the ancient world, if people bothered to do that anymore. What do you mean, like with regards to the end of the Roman Empire and how they used yeah. to, I mean, it is a, a fantastic story because you can see it in history and, and you can see the three different ways that they would inflate it by taking the money and clipping it and attacking their, you know, arresting their high citizens and stealing their wealth. And of course, the other big one is expanding in territories and taking over in different regions and then taking the wealth there. And you're like, hmm. Let's see the comparisons to our modern world. <laughs> Let me list ways. So, yeah, it, it's remarkable when you look at those ancient uh, examples and they have such clear parallels to our modern world. And yet we just accept them like that they're normal and we don't question them and we don't fight against them. And we can see what the end result was in the ancient world and yet not apply that to ourselves. We, we seem to not want to learn the lessons that history has so conveniently laid out for us. And can I just say, like, how how easy it would be to not learn those lessons if those lessons were stricken from the historical record, which is what <laughs> is being threatened right now with regards to cancel culture. I mean, I just started off by outlining, you know, just how much we would miss out on if we were to if we were to cancel. Anya and I have been talking about this for a little while, and we kind of jokingly jokingly call it homicide uh, in our evening sobremesa, but if it were possible to cancel Homer's twin epics, it's not as if you just walk in. It's like walking into an ecosystem and taking out one tiny little animal and expecting that there'll be no ripple, you know, butterfly effects throughout the rest of the ecosystem. You take out those twin epics and it's kind of hard to find, you know, to find a place for Virgil to go. So you've got, you've got no Aeneas, then you've got, You've got no, where, where's Dante? Where's Paradise? Where's Milton's Paradise Lost? Where's Joyce's Ulysses? I mean, it has this domino effect all the way down through history. So it's, you know, you take one Jenga piece out. Okay, maybe you can do that a couple of times, but, you know, you get deep into it, into the game. You have a couple of shots and, the, you know, the music's going. You take a few Jengas out and all of a sudden you've just got, you know, a pile of useless things on the ground and, and you're back to square one. And 
you know, uh, I, I was calling to mind that Newton's famous phrase, we can see so far because we stand on the shoulder of giants. It occurs to me that, that in today's cancel culture, uh, they're worried about seeing so far because they feel these giants on their shoulders to kind of invert that, that, uh, that phrase. And, um, you know, we're going to be running around like little dwarfs, not able to see over, over our own toes if we go on canceling our history. Yeah, well, the one optimistic thing about classics is they have lasted for thousands of years. And there have been many periods in history where, where the classics were banned. I, uh, as I was preparing for this conversation, I was, re- I was just recalling how the, um, the Catholic priest Savernola squashed the Renaissance in, um, in Florence when de Medici and Michelangelo and uh, da Vinci were all active in cultivating secular art. And Savernola was elected by the people and he squashed the entire thing. But what <laughs> happened to him uh, five years later was he disappointed the entire populace and they hung him in the, um, the town square. Yeah, can I can I just can I just say that you know we think about the fact that the during the the dark ages, the middle medieval period, the Islamic world you know kept on uh, holding on to the classics and preserving them for later on later when they they re reinvigorated in in the West. And um, if it makes everyone feel better, I talked to a lot of professors and each of them have sort of their different niche. And so the other day I was talking to uh, uh, a man who focuses on Plato, specifically Plato's Republic. And apparently in the Far East, they love Plato. And he is flown out to Taiwan like at least twice a year for big Plato conferences. And then I was talking to another professor who is a specialist in and skepticism in John Hopkins, actually. And he gets flown down here to South America all the time because there's a huge skeptic movement. So while the West wants to burn its own history, rest assured, at least in other countries, it's valued. Well, that sounds like a good note to end on. Rest assured. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, guys. Um, I will be in touch soon. And thank you for, uh, for joining this episode of The Waking Sessions. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Bonner Private Research Podcast. You can find more conversations like this in the members-only section of our website at bonnerprivateresearch.com. If you would like to contact us, please address compliments and complaints alike to podcast at bonnerprivateresearch.com. We look forward to hearing from you either way. Until next week.